Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Lawrence Cantor and Leonardo. Cantor is the curator of Leonardo Discoveries from Verrocchio's Studio at the Yale University Art Gallery. The exhibition examines a little-studied period early in Leonardo da Vinci's career. His time as an apprentice in the studio of sculptor, painter, and goldsmith Andrea del Verrocchio. In the exhibition, Cantor argues that a pair of predella panels that were made for a large altarpiece in Pistoia, Italy, the Annunciation, now at the Louvre, and a miracle of St. Donatus of Arezzo at the Worcester Art Museum, were executed by a young Leonardo. The exhibition, which is on view through October 7th, is accompanied by a terrific, wonderfully readable catalog published by the Yale University Art Gallery and distributed by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for $35, a steal. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, my 2014 conversation with Matisse historian John Klein. But first, Lawrence Cantor, after a break. The Kimball Art Museum presents From the Lands of Asia, the Sam and Myrna Myers Collection. Discover exotic costumes and customs, an ocean of treasured porcelain, transcendent Buddhist icons, and the magical allure of jade. Journey through the legendary lands of Asia on view at the Kimball Art Museum through August 19th. Plan your visit at kimballart.org. Combo Chimbita delivers a delicious mix of cumbia, salsa, reggae, 1970s Funana from Cape Verde, and compa from Haiti. Hear this New York-based band on Saturday, August 25th at 6 p.m. as part of Off the 405, a free summer concert series bringing today's most exciting bands to the Getty for an evening of live music amid stunning architecture and sunset views. Learn more at getty.edu 360. And we're back. Lawrence Cantor, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. How are you? Great. Let's start 20 years ago when you came to think about a predella panel known as A Miracle of St. Donatus of Arezzo in Worcester at the Worcester Art Museum, which was then attributed to student of and friend of Leonardo, Lorenzo Di Credi. Why did the painting attract your attention in the first place? And then, I guess more importantly for the story of this show, why did that panel sustain your attention? Well, as you might imagine, not as many people visit the Worcester Art Museum as it deserves. It's a wonderful collection, but it's well hidden off the usual culture tourist routes. When I came across that panel, which was purely serendipitous 20-odd 20, 20 years ago, it occurred to me immediately, this is not by Lorenzo Di Credi. It's much too good a work of art to be by him. But there must be a reason why the museum put that label alongside it. Most museums don't try to downplay their collections. They try to hype them or puff them or, or be absolutely accurate about it. And it quickly became apparent, just staring at the painting, that the problem was that it was, although it's small, it was by more than one artist. Looking at it, even now, even casually, you can see quickly that the two figures in it are painted by two different hands. The one on the right, the bishop kneeling, is a masterful painting. It's a, the figure is beautifully situated in space. With your eye, you can measure exactly the volume of air that he displaces, the temperature of the light that falls across him, the way his draperies rest on the ground around him. You can even see that he's leaning forward by the way the folds break in and out of the light, breaking across them. The figure on the left, instead, is only barely competent. Everything is drawn parallel to the picture plane and flat. The red draperies have no real modeling in volumes. The figure doesn't sit properly in front of the building that he's stand or kneeling in front of. His right foot is further back in space than his right knee, even though he's in pure profile. So I wondered, but not more than casually, why it was that Lorenzo Di Credi, who was obviously the second artist, the one who was not competent, was working alongside someone much, much more gifted on the right. And that someone much more gifted struck me at the time as possibly Leonardo, but it's such a, an arrogant thing to just look at a painting and say, oh, that's Leonardo. So I left it, I left it sit fallow for a while, did a little bit of work later on, 
when the Worcester Museum asked me if I would help them put together a study of the painting, which they had removed immediately from view, and then finally an exhibition. And that's what led to all of the other stories that are incorporated in the catalog. So we've mentioned Leonardo, we've mentioned Lorenzo de Credi. Before we get to the Predella uh, panel at the Louvre, we should probably explain why you might think of three painters together, Leonardo, Lorenzo de Credi, and uh, Andrea del Verrocchio. Exactly. The little bit that we know about the early career of either Lorenzo de Credi or Leonardo da Vinci puts both of them in the studio of Andrea del Verrocchio as pupils, apprentices. And in the case of Leonardo, it seems to put him back there at a late, slightly later date, as a, probably as a junior partner or as an associate. And then finally, after Leonardo left Florence for Milan, Verrocchio also left Florence to move to Venice. The Florentine studio remained the property of Lorenzo di Credi. So these three names are inextricably linked always in any picture that looks like it might have any of them involved in it. And they'll remain linked throughout the story that your catalog and, and the show tells. So across time and space, there's a Predella panel at the Louvre that you have paired with the Worcester panel painting. Why did you somewhat naturally come to think of the panel at the Louvre as one that you wanted to examine? And and did it take 20 years to get there? <laughs> no, no, no. I wish I, could, I wish I could claim that that was my discovery. It wasn't. Back in the 1930s, it was recognized that those two paintings related to each other. And in fact, that's the reason why both of them came to have an attribution to Lorenzo di Grady. I first saw the Louvre painting when I was 19 years old. At that time, and even until last year, <laughs> I don't want to tell you how many decades ago I was 19, the Louvre panel had a label alongside it that said Lorenzo di Credi or Leonardo da Vinci. And it always struck me, even as an undergraduate, that it's either one or the other. These two painters can't be confused with each other. But obviously the authorities at the Louvre did not want to stake a claim one way or the other. The problem is that in the 1930s, both of these paintings were recognized as fragments of a single picture and that single picture belonged to, it was itself a part of, an altarpiece that's now in Pistoia, near Florence. That altarpiece is the only surviving painting that has, that is a documented commission to Andrea del Verrocchio. So we know exactly what studio or what ambiance it was created in. What we don't know is who painted it, because nothing painted in the studio of Andrea del Verrocchio is subject to agreement by anyone over who, who's the responsible artist. There are reasons for that, which our catalog goes into, but they're a little bit aside from the argument here. There is a document in which Verrocchio is replying apparently to a lawsuit brought against him. And in that document, he says to the patrons of that altarpiece that your painting is all but finished and would have been finished completely six years ago if you had paid me for it. From that document, I think it's possible to infer, logically it's unavoidable to infer, that Verrocchio and his then pupils worked on it, probably assiduously for a few years, didn't receive payment, and they just put it aside incomplete. Six years later, he was sued to have it delivered, so he had it finished and delivered it. Vasari in the 16th century says that that painting is by Lorenzo di Credi. All modern scholarship, therefore, accepts it without question as by Lorenzo di Credi. Therefore, they accept the Louvre and the Worcester fragments as by Lorenzo di Credi. But according to that document, Lorenzo di Credi is probably only the person who finished the altarpiece, not necessarily the person who began it, or possibly not even the person who painted most of it. So the story that the show tells, the argument it makes, and the narrative of the catalog and before we go on, I just want to plug the catalog here. I mean, at a time once August Pulitzer Prizes for criticism are distributed to a critic who lacks expertise on a subject, such as Leonardo, specific Leonardo, but who writes in a way intended to be authoritative anyway, a kind of insistence that a lack of expertise is as important as actual earned experthood. This is the real deal, actual argument and research into Leonardo and how and why and who. 
But one of the things that's probably important to note here as, as we consider the painting in Pistoia is that Verrocchio's painting studio, anyway, was really collaborative. And, and, and this painting seems to be an example of that, right? Yes. Let me say, not as an aside, but as a the front and center point, both of the exhibition and of the catalog, is that this whole argument, this whole exercise is about avoiding complacency. It's about not respecting exclusively that which we have been told, but looking at the works of art to see what they have to say. Verrocchio's output is the the epicenter, the, the dense black hole from which that kind of argument really should emanate, because almost everything produced there is by more than one artist. Almost everything produced there has been assumed to be the work of an artist, and therefore confusion reigns. The catalog is more expansive than the exhibition, but nothing can take the place of looking at the works of art in the original. So I think both together are a great opportunity to, to unravel this knot. Well, speaking of a dense black hole, it's at the center of the Worcester panel and is part of your argument, but we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there in a minute. So explain to us, before we get into the next part of the story, what knowledge you think we're gaining or that we might gain from this investigation, from separating Verrocchio from Leonardo and, and Leonardo from Verrocchio and so forth? Well, at the risk of sounding arrogant, I think this is a, a great leap forward for studies in late 15th century painting in Florence. We've always admired Verrocchio as a sculptor. We have never known what he looks like as a painter. It is now, I think, finally possible to be confident of identifying him as an as a artist in two dimensions. And not on the basis of hearsay or presumption, but on the basis of hard physical evidence. And to recover as many as nine paintings from the early earliest career of Leonardo da Vinci is, well, by definition, it's an important task. I'm not the one who should say that, of course, but I, I think it's hard to avoid the reality of it. We have always assumed that Leonardo was born a genius. He didn't need to be trained. We've always assumed that as all of his known paintings are painted in oil, he must always have known how to paint in oil without realizing that no one could have taught him how to paint in oil. He had to learn first how to paint in tempera. So what does a tempera painting by Leonardo look like? It's very strange to think that people haven't been searching for them for years before this. How did Leonardo earn a living? He was 30 years old when he moved to Milan and received his first salary. How did he stay alive for 30 years? These are questions that should have been consuming us, but never occurred to scholars. I mean, the problem with the Leonardo's born genius idea, of course, is that it simplifies rather than complicates history. And the way historians like to build knowledge is by complicating history and seeing what that can teach us about building stories and understandings about what happened. That's very true. And in this case, it was urged along by the earliest known biography of Leonardo, Vasari's, written only, what, 20 or 25 years after Leonardo died, in which he starts by saying, genius like this can't be taught. It can only be created by heaven. Therefore, why are we bothering to look for where he began? So in that Pistoia altarpiece, to go back to the painting, the, the thing I couldn't stop looking at once you pointed out was the fringe of the tapestry in the center foreground of the painting. Why did you look there, and who do you think contributed that part of the painting? Well, oddly enough, if you've ever had the privilege of going to Pistoia to see that painting, which is very difficult to get access to, I might add, it's in a dark chapel difficult to get access to. It's usually locked away and you need to bring your own lights. It's so high up off the ground that the carpet is at eye level, the, the very bottom of the, of the altarpiece. Can I, can I interrupt with a question really quickly? So do we know if the altarpiece is today where it was hung? Was it intended that that fringe of the carpet be at eye level by the, by the studio, by the artists? We don't know. We know it was in a chapel in the 16th century that was very close to where it is now but we really don't know about its placement relative to the viewer. The reality, though, is this. The, the, the composition of that painting is not completely original. It follows a type of altarpiece that was invented in Florence by Fra Angelico maybe 40 years earlier and was experimented with by several artists between Angelico and Verrocchio. 
But the realization of that altarpiece is revolutionary and unique in that it pays much greater attention to the space, to the, the decoration of the space, such as that carpet, such as the marble of the architecture behind the figures. It pays much greater attention to those details than it does to the figures themselves. Whereas all earlier painters focused on the figures and everything else was thrown in as a surround, as a stuffage around them. That carpet is, I think it's flown below the radar, but it is some of the most remarkable square centimeters of paint that survives from any period in the Western tradition. If you have an image of it before you and just look at the, com the complexity of the pattern in the weave, which you can see, of course, as it climbs the risers of the steps, and then as it flattens out over the top of each step, it is flawlessly continued in extremely sharp measured perspective and it changes its illumination level it's bright on the top of the steps and you can sense the texture of it throughout nothing falls apart and becomes uh, schematic or stereotypical then when your eye follows down to those knotted tassels or fringe at the bottom and you realize that every rope was individually studied it, they're not just mechanical repetitions to get the panel to get the picture finished, you realize that you're in front of a painstaking genius whose primary concern was optical realism, was not the narrative requirements of the, of the composition. Those saints would be just as holy without that carpet beneath their feet. But that carpet is really the subject of this painting, as is the beautiful colors of the marble in the pilasters around the Virgin, or that beautiful velvet brocade behind her with the shell niche above her head. Those are details that we tend to not even focus on as we're glancing at works of art. But in this case, they are the real gripping uh, subject of that painting. So let's put the whole thing together. We have the altarpiece in Pistoia and the two predellas, or at least two predellas, in Paris and Worcester. You write that it's important to look not just at the architectural details in the altarpiece, but also the architectural details in the predellas and, and I guess to extend architecture a bit to the hole in the ground. What might they tell us about whose hand was at work in the predellas? Well, you'll have a hard time with the Worcester predella parsing this out, but if we start with the Louvre predella, I think you can see that even in its most simplified form, you just have blank walls on the right, for example, but you have those amazing benches built against the facade of the building that wraps around the walls. If you zero in close, I guess that's a computer term. If you're in the exhibition and you move closer and closer to the painting, you will see that the cast shadows under the legs of those benches are astonishingly precise. You can even see the carving of the back leg of the bench. It, unnecessary as an inclusion for the painting, but it's there. And you can see that each of those back legs is carved with a double-step molding. Again, this is a recording of optical reality that goes well beyond the needs of just getting a painting finished. You also can see the continuous, unbroken recession of space from the foreground to the deep parts of the landscape. You see the light pouring in from that hole in the low wall at the left, these are details of remarkable subtlety, but strangely enough, of remarkable originality as well. In the Worcester painting, it's a different problem. And I've only come to realize this, in fact, after the catalog went to press. In the Worcester painting, the figure of the kneeling bishop is of that level of intellectual competence and technical ability and skill. The figure of the kneeling tax collector at the left is schizophrenic. The upper part, the sleeve, the shoulder, even the face is very, very good. The red draperies, the feet, which aren't even in proportion to the rest of the figure, are, are really pathetically bad. The architecture is mechanical. It's just drawn by straight lines with a, a, a straight edge and um, a compass. But if we look at that painting in X-ray or in infrared reflectography, in the catalog there, these images are included in a separate essay in the back you'll see that that architecture is just loosely brushed with random strokes around the figures. It's just included there to fill out the panel surface. At that point, you have to realize that's not Leonardo. That's just artist B. That's Lorenzo di Credi hurrying up to finish the painting 
to, to satisfy this lawsuit. What must have happened is that Verrocchio and Leonardo, working side by side, brought that painting to a certain degree of completion between, let's say, 1475 and 1478 or 1479, then just left it aside. Lorenzo di Credi at that time was, what, 16 years old. In 1485, when Verrocchio was sued to finish it, Verrocchio was in Venice, Leonardo was in Milan, Lorenzo di Credi was left in Florence in the studio. He finished it and delivered it to Pistoia. The only parts of the altarpiece itself that I can see as being by Lorenzo are the, the, the child and the Madonna's blue draperies. And since those are front and center in the middle of the picture, it's easy for everyone to have just relax and said, okay, this painting is by Lorenzo di Credi. But the closer you look, the less plausible that simple solution is. The next kind of big moment in your narrative comes from two panels from an Italian wedding chest, which ultimately you end up dating to about 1473. How did you get to this wedding chest and why is it important in the story? Well, that was almost an Antiques Roadshow story, I have to say. I, I found those two panels in basement storage at the Musée Jacques Marandre in Paris, where they have been since, well, before 1915, but they have never been exhibited. They were lent on one occasion to an exhibition in Budapest and on another to an exhibition in Florence. And some scholars had gone so far as to say these must be the work of Andrea del Verrocchio. But when I saw photographs of them, I realized that the landscapes behind them are unlike anything that we've ever come to believe Verrocchio could have painted. They're exactly like the landscapes painted by Leonardo in the background of his mature works. So I asked permission to see them in Paris. We fished them out. And under strong light, <laughs> my cell phone, it became apparent that, like the Worcester panel, these pictures, which are much, much larger, were each by two different artists. In each case, the figures at the left were of the same brilliance and accomplishment as the landscape. The figures at the right were pedestrian. I don't know why it's a left-right division. It just happens to be that way. Studying the details ever more closely, it became inevitable to conclude that those figures on the left of each panel could only be by Leonardo da Vinci. Whereas the figures on the right, I still haven't figured out. I have no idea if this is a commission to Verrocchio that Leonardo was assigned together with some other studio mate, if it was a commission directly to Leonardo that someone finished up for him, or what it was. All I know is that Leonardo is present there. And I also know that these pictures have now been requested for loan to the Louvre for their major Leonardo exhibition next year. The date of 1473 transpired because one of the two panels includes a coat of arms. These, panel, these furniture chest panels were always commissioned as pairs and always on the occasion of important weddings. They, were, they decorated a chest that was meant to hold the bride's trousseau. A pair of chests, obviously. In this case, the coat of arms was for the Manelli family in Florence. And if we're going back to the archives for all the marriages that that family was involved with during the period of the years in which Leonardo was living in Florence, only two marriages emerged that could be candidates for these chests. And both of those occurred in the year 1473. So I should have mentioned this earlier. The Worcester and Louvre panels are about roughly 6 by 13 inches wide. The wedding chest paintings are 5 feet wide and about uh, and a little under 2 feet tall. So we're talking about an enormously different scale. But don't be misled by those numbers. The figures in the wedding chests are actually much smaller than those in either the Louvre or the Worcester panel. And the wedding chests were always meant to be viewed on the floor. You weren't meant to be eye to eye with them. They weren't important paintings. They were decorative, utilitarian objects. To have lavished that much attention to the anatomy of the horses or the structure of the armor in those paintings or the reflections in the river for an object that most people would be kicking rather than looking at is, is simply extraordinary. So we started in Verrocchio's studio, and we've been pulling Leonardo out as an author of specific, specific works. And you mentioned earlier that it's really difficult to pull out Verrocchio as the author of specific works. 
a painting at London's National Gallery of a Virgin and Child demonstrates this. How? Well, I think it's the it was a wake up call that many of us received to realize just how complicated this argument is. Over the last 70 years or so, a number of very distinguished scholars and connoisseurs have sorted through a group of paintings in the Verrocchio style, trying to decide which of them might actually be Verrocchio, which instead we might call Perugino, which could be Botticelli, which might be Ghirlandaio, and then in the garden variety of other minor names have been thrown into the mix as well. The painting in London and a related painting in Berlin have always floated to the top of that group. A few years ago, uh, maybe it's eight years ago now, I don't remember exactly how long, the London painting was cleaned at the National Gallery. And at that time, the conservators and curators took the opportunity to conduct a very extensive technical examination of the panel, during which they discovered that it is clearly by two different painters. The Virgin and the angel at the left holding a lily are by one artist, an artist who also painted the landscape, and the Christ child and the angel at the right holding him are by a different artist, one much less accomplished technically. They leapt to the logical conclusion that the good artist, hand A, must be Verrocchio, because after all, Verrocchio was the head of the studio, and that the less good artist, hand B, the Christ child and the other angel, must be Lorenzo di Credi, because everyone knows he's less good than Verrocchio. Clearly, he was less good than Verrocchio. My contention is that that was a leap of faith that was poorly judged, because we know exactly what Lorenzo di Credi looks like. He had a long 40-odd-year career. He painted dozens, if not a hundred, paintings in that period of time. They all look exactly alike, and not a single one of them looks remotely like those two figures. The solution to this conundrum lies elsewhere. And I think, I believe the solution lies in recognizing that the less good artist is actually Verrocchio. Those two figures look like the parts of the baptism altarpiece that Vasari talks about that we all acknowledge are by Verrocchio. The better figures, the virgin and the angel with the lily, instead are extraordinary. And not just extraordinary, but again, revolutionary in the effects that they achieve of the passage of light across draperies or across bone structure in the back of the angel's hand or across the wet surface of his eyeball or through the diaphanous leaves, petals of the lily that he holds, all of which are painted in this instance in tempera paints, not in oils. And tempera is not, by its chemical nature, adept at rendering those effects, but Leonardo found a way to achieve it all the same. I think that the only reason his name didn't occur immediately to the curators in London is that the paintings in tempera. We've never thought of Leonardo as a tempera painter. I will say that the director of the National Gallery at the time did think it was Leonardo, but he did not choose to contradict his staff politically wise move, and one that all of us curators much appreciate, but I think he was correct. Anyway, removing that, removing those, the, the notion, this legend that, Leonardo, that Verrocchio has to be this super painter and allowing these great passages and paintings to be recognized as Leonardo's makes it quite clear who, Le, who Verrocchio was as a painter. He's not a second-rate painter. He's just not as good as Leonardo. But then again, who was? Verrocchio remains one of the great artists of his generation. You know, there's one other element in this particular London painting that I want to ask about. So the angel on the left, the one holding the martyr's lily in in this virgin and child, has a brooch, sort of a brooch. The jewel at his collar, yes. Exactly. And so does Mary in this painting. Exact same brooch-ish thing. Were they painted by the same hand? Were they painted by different hands? Are there hints there? They were painted by the same hand, and they were. you can get a sense of their quality from the image in the catalog, but until you actually go to London and stand in front of that picture, you have no way of understanding how magical that those passages of paint are, as the reflective quality of each of the jewels and the gilded surfaces in those brooches is completely counterfeited accurately in paint. The brooch itself could very well have been something made by Verrocchio. He was a goldsmith. 
No doubt it was a studio prop, whether Verrocchio made it or not. But those passages of paint are exclusively possible if you think of them as the work of Leonardo. We've been talking about Verrocchio's painting studio and how it was collaborative and how this show in the catalog tries to unravel that story. Was Verrocchio's sculpture studio is collaborative or was it more individual? No, it was collaborative. And that should come as a surprise to no one since sculpture is such a difficult mechanical process. The great bronze figures that Verrocchio cast for Orsa Michele, the Christ and St. Thomas group, for instance, required 16 years from start to finish. And it's easy to understand that Verrocchio was not laboring single-handedly on them that whole time. Additionally, we've never really been able to reconcile uh, in our minds the differences among Verrocchio sculptures. Some of them are aggressively volumetric and almost coarse, and others are so refined that they look like they were carved by the action of sand in the wind over a thousand years, like the lady with primroses in the Bargello. What we've done in the exhibition is bring together four sculptures that illustrate different aspects or very clear aspects of how Verrocchio was, in the first instance, a commercial entrepreneur, even in producing sculpture. One is the very beautiful marble relief, which we found in Boston, hiding under a misattribution to a minor follower of Verrocchio, Francesco di Simone Ferrucci. The problem there is that the Christ child in this smack in the center of the relief is a totally incompetent piece of carving. Not only is he ugly, homely, I should say, it's a Christ child after all, but the hand of the angel resting on his shoulder is, is incompetent. The legs are just realized by carving straight back from the surface from an outline drawing. They're actually squared off in the relief itself. And the, the, the feet of the Christ child are like club feet. Whereas the, the virgin and the angel on the left are masterpieces of delicacy, of fully realized three-dimensional form in the way the draperies come out. The acanthus leaf decoration of her chair is not just routine wood carving decor. It's an actual acanthus leaf carefully modeled and, as it were, fluttering in the wind. The angel moves his head. You can see his hair spreading out against the background. I could go on and on. But the problem with a relief like that is because it's two different artists, we've had a very difficult time understanding how to read it, how to appreciate it as a work of art. So it's 2018. You mentioned the big 2019 Leonardo show in Paris next year. I imagine that all of this over the next year will be discussed a lot among historians and curators. Are there formal places where that will be happening that we should keep an eye out for, or are there going to be a lot of barroom discussions over the next year? Uh, you can imagine that the the name Leonardo is such a, a flashpoint for controversy that there will be many heated discussions and I frankly don't anticipate much agreement, let alone unanimity of opinion. As it happens, even before the Louvre puts together its great Leonardo exhibition, the National Gallery of Art in Washington will be mounting an exhibition of Verrocchio, as will the Palazzo Strozzi and the Bargello in Florence. Though, although those institutions are sharing this Verrocchio exhibition, they'll be very different between them. And the image of the sculptor or painter you carry away with you if you visit both shows will be very different. It will be amusing to see in Washington, for example, where for the first time ever, the three great Madonnas that are part of this Leonardo Verrocchio complex will be, seen, will be viewable side by side. I strongly suspect they'll all be attributed there to Verrocchio. I strongly suspect that that will be our opportunity finally to realize that that's been a mistake in attribution all along. But not being a curator of the Washington show, it's not my place to write their label copy for them. I will say, as an aside, when we were fortunate enough to persuade our colleagues at the Louvre to lend us the very beautiful Annunciation panel, when they took it out of its case at the Louvre, they replaced it with a temporarily removed tag that says, the Annunciation by Leonardo da Vinci is now on loan at etc., etc. So a little bit of progress has been made. Yeah, that's how these things work. Sounds like more books on all of this will be even more fun to read than this catalog. Lawrence Cantor, thanks so much. 
Thank you, Tyler. How can architecture transform and elevate society and the quality of life it offers citizens? The critically acclaimed exhibition Toward a Concrete Utopia, Architecture in Yugoslavia, 1948-1980, now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan, explores that question. New York Magazine calls it, quote, a hugely ambitious and revelatory new show. The New York Times says it's, quote, outstanding and continually surprising. Get more info and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. This summer, visit the Guggenheim Museum in New York to see Giacometti, called Majestic by the New Yorker. Featuring nearly 200 sculptures, paintings, and drawings, the exhibition takes a close look at the art-making process of the Swiss artist Alberto Giacometti, known for his distinctive sculptures of the human form. Experience the show through September 12th, including on Tuesday nights when the museum is open until 9 p.m. Tickets at guggenheim.org slash Giacometti. Welcome back. Next up, my 2014 conversation with Washington University-based art historian John Klein about how Henri Matisse migrated projects from cutouts to decorative art installations. The interview was taped on the occasion of Henri Matisse the Cutouts, which was then on view at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Klein's new book, Matisse and Decoration, which this interview effectively previews, will be out from Yale University Press in October. I have an advanced copy. I've been reading it. It is fantastic. John Klein, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Good to be here, Tyler. Thanks. So obviously we're talking on the occasion of the Matisse Cutout show that's now at the Museum of Modern Art. You've been researching the relationship between Matisse's cutouts and what? And the commissions he received and also private initiatives for various kinds of decorations in uh, mostly architectural media, such as stained glass windows and ceramic tile murals, but also tapestries and fabric wall hangings carpets, dress fabric design, uh, silk scarves, quite a variety of projects that, for which he used uh, paper cutouts as the design tool. So what prompted Matisse to become interested in translating, if you will, works and ideas from cut paper into, into other things? Well, I think maybe the, the way to think about this is not that he became interested in translating one thing into another, but rather he became interested in designing for permanent settings and for challenging media, media that he didn't actually work in and that in most cases are not traditional Beaux-Arts instruction media. He was well instructed in painting, sculpture, and drawing and so forth, but he was also designing for tapestries. He'd never woven a tapestry, and why would we expect him to? So he's designing for things that are then executed by skilled craftspeople in unfamiliar target media. And so the cutouts became a way to do that, became a way to design for sometimes very large-scale projects, as he'd done for the dance painting, the big dance mural for the Barnes Foundation in Marion, now Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, using paper cutouts that he could move around and cut down and repin, and he could move figures, he could change colors. All of this process of revision was much more easily accomplished than if he'd done it actually in painting on a canvas. Was it his idea? Was it his son Pierre's idea to begin to do some of these? How did how did the genesis of, of, of that happen? Well, can't know what was going on in Henri Matisse's head, but it's certainly Pierre's idea. Matisse started using paper cutouts for that dance mural in the early 1930s as an expedient, as a design tool, probably without any thought that these would or could result in permanent uh, artworks. And then he designed some covers for journals in the mid-1930s, Cahiers d'Art, uh, Verve in 1937. He did costumes and set designs and a drop curtain for the Ballet Russe uh, production of uh, The Red and the Black, Rouge et Noir, in the late 1930s. So he's using the cutout medium for a variety of applications uh, at this time, sometimes very tentatively. And again, maybe without the thought that the cutouts themselves would become actual works of art. And then he worked on an illustrated book, very different from any other illustrated book he'd done. And we all know it, this book, Jazz, which he began work on in 1943 when he made paper cutouts to design the illustrations for this book, which was eventually published in 1947 after the Second World War. And at that point, he probably had the idea that these might actually be legitimate things as works of art, not merely design tools for uh, works to be made in other media. 
works in other media that are probably best known in the United States are the ceramic pieces Apollo, which is in Toledo, the Toledo Museum of Art, and La Gerbe, which translates as the sheaf, which is at LACMA. How did how did those pieces come about? Well, the both of them uh, came about for the same purpose. This via Pierre Matisse as an intermediary, Francine, who was living in New York and working as a dealer, living in New York, uh, worked there as uh, for 55 years as one of the most important dealers in modern and so-called primitive art, also in New York City, uh, until the late 1980s. And he was the intermediary for many of his father's initiatives in the United States. Sidney and Francine Brody lived in the Hollywood Hills, and they wanted to, they collected modern art. Uh, they had Matisse's in their collection already, and they wanted a mural for their outdoor patio, very SoCal, to have a, an outdoor living room in effect, complete with a fireplace and palm trees and so forth. And so this idea intrigued Matisse. Pierre made the approach to his father, and uh, then Matisse went off like a gun half-cocked. So he's buying things without knowing the actual dimensions of the space that he was going to decorate. And so he made a couple of compositions that were far too big for the space. They are now in the National Gallery of Art in Washington, a large decoration with masks, and that is in the exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art. And another, I think, very nearly or about the same size in the Matisse Museum in Nice called Decoration Fruit and Flowers. And then the third effort is the one known as Apollo. And that is the uh, ceramic to which you refer in the Toledo Museum of Art. The paper cutout uh, that he made the design in is in uh, uh, Stockholm in a museum there in the Modern Art Museum of uh, Sweden. And the Brodies didn't like that uh, composition. It was the right size. Somebody finally got the dimensions, space in question. It was the right size and so forth, but they thought it was too formal and a little bit static, which it is, it's a static composition. None the worse for that. So Matisse did an asymmetrical radiating or radiant composition with the sheaf, which is now in the collection of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, a bequest uh, of uh, the Brodies, transferred. There's a very interesting uh, video published by LACMA of the uh, transfer process of that ceramic tile mural from the house in Hollywood to the museum with a big crane and so forth. And this actually illustrates one of the difficulties of having an exhibition that includes these materials. Is they are in permanent places, and they're sometimes very difficult and maybe impossible to transport. So, yeah, LACMA and Toledo have, I think it might be the only two Matisse originally to be in situ ceramic designs, uh, the only ones in the United States. I'm probably wrong about that. I'm probably forgetting one, but there are those two prominent ones. And Apollo is very interesting because it has relief elements. A couple of the pieces of paper in the cutout were were folded, fan folded, and uh, that was recreated in ceramic. So there are elements that stick out from the wall. So it's not exactly planar. So how were these ceramics made and how involved was Matisse in the uh, process? Both both date to 1953 and Matisse died in 54. Yeah, he was very involved in the uh, uh, artisanal processes of production. He didn't know anything about those processes. Well, that's probably unfair. He knew something, but he couldn't actually do that work. He, he relied on skilled craftsmen, usually craftsmen. And so there were a couple of firms, one called Artigas in the south of France. They did decorative ceramics for various applications, including making uh, tiles for pres presumably things like kitchen backsplashes and bathrooms and so forth. And they could also be oriented toward making fine art ceramics. Uh, ceramic is a very big medium in the south of France in the 1940s and the 50s in the post-war period. Picasso is actively at work on a whole variety of ceramic compositions, usually on vase forms or plate forms, but uh, ceramic Exhibited is, at the Met, I think, about a decade ago. Yes, that's right. And uh, so uh, ceramic uh, is a pretty, pretty important uh, material for artists working at this time. So Matisse was very concerned about how the colors would come out and how the surface texture would look. And he was very exacting about matching the color of the final artwork to his designs in colored cut paper which was almost futile since the colors were inevitably different, the color balances were different, the textures were different, ceramic has a sheen, the gouache paper cutouts do not. And 
one of the things that Matisse really had to reconcile himself to was that he could not, or that is, others on his behalf could not attain the effects that he sought by making these uh, cut paper designs. And so he probably, in a sense, learned to live with the differences, but he also probably learned to design with the target materials in mind. Uh, one example is uh, his work for stained glass. It's clear that if you make an opaque paper cutout, you are making something quite different than what will eventually be a transparent or translucent design in glass. And so you're thinking about the color made by light coming through colored glass while you are working in, uh, in uh, opaque watercolor gouache uh, on pieces of paper. Very, very different issues in the two kinds of coloration. Other than the coloration, do we see changes in the works between the cutout maquettes and some of these finished decorative compositions, decorative pieces? Yeah, sure. One of them is, and this is a, a great feature and, and a real reason to see the exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art, you know, a, a, an esteemed colleague of mine a couple of days ago uh, asked me at a party, why are we having another exhibition of Matisse's paper cutouts? They're all so familiar. And I thought about this and I realized it wasn't difficult to realize that what this person really means is that images of the paper cutouts are really familiar. They're widely reproduced. They've uh, often been reproduced in a medium that has really smoothed away the physical physicality, the materiality uh, of the paper cutouts. Uh, a lot of the original illustrations of Matisse's cutouts were uh, done in France uh, in a process called pochoir, which is a hand uh, silkscreen uh, method that tended to produce very even blocks or blobs or areas of color, where in fact, most of the cutouts are made up of multiple pieces of paper pinned together to one another and then subsequently glued down. So there are a lot of internal cut edges in many of the cutouts, and that often doesn't come across in reproduction. That's one thing you realize when you see them in the flesh in a museum exhibition or somewhere else, how very important the material is. Also, reproductions can't really adequately reproduce the uh, texture of the color on the on the paper surface, a texture that he did not make himself since he sensibly had assistants uh, color uh, big pieces of good quality drawing paper with gouache color, and then he would cut the shapes out with scissors, which was a, a new artistic tool uh, for him. Do you think that three-dimensionality is why there is a bas-relief component to the Toledo piece? Well, yes, except that you'd think that maybe if he wanted that effect, he, you might find it elsewhere, and I don't think you do. Although in the studio, and this is something that the current exhibition really seeks to emphasize, in Matisse's studio, the pieces of, of cut paper, which tended to be pinned up on his walls, the walls of his bedroom or the walls of his dining room or other rooms in his apartments in the south of France, these pieces of paper tended to, oh, flap a little bit or waver in the breeze. Uh, they could be moved around. The, the current exhibition emphasizes the contingency of the paper cutouts in Matisse's studio and how... His designs were always subject to revision under his hand, or if not literally under his hand, at least at his direction. And so their materiality is very important, but I don't know of another example of a deliberately three-dimensionalized piece of paper, a piece of paper put into a relief position as those fanfold pieces of paper are in Apollo. The exhibition catalog includes a Hélène Adant photograph of Apollo uh, the cutout for Apollo on the wall of Matisse's room at, at his hotel in Nice and in, in his in rooms in Nice. Matisse is actually <laughs> in bed on the phone with a cat on his lap in the picture. We'll try to have that on manpodcast.com. So the book you're working on and that I think you're almost done with is titled Matisse's Late Decorations and the Essential Quality of Art. We've been talking about the late decorations. Tell me about the last part of the title. The Essential Quality of Art. Yes, this is Matisse's phrase, in effect, in defense of the idea of decoration, which even in his lifetime was coming to have a pejorative uh, connotation. And Matisse is on record as saying that he believed that uh, decoration is not, shouldn't be used in a pejorative sense, the idea of decoration, but that it instead is, it is an essential quality of art, that all great art 
has a decorative quality. So the decorative aesthetic in his work is something that I'm trying to emphasize because my book actually goes back to the beginning of Matisse's career to establish the foundation for an idea of decoration in 19th century and early 20th century art theory, and then in his early work as well. But it does focus on the last 20 or 25 years of his career and all of these projects. So this is a a kind of an unfashionable way of thinking about art now, that its importance would lie in its decorative qualities. But it was something that Matisse insisted upon, and it's there again and again in his thinking and in his uh, in the execution of his work. He was an artist who was not very interested in uh, politics, not very interested in his art sending a message, not very interested in uh, his art being relevant. Uh, he wanted it to be. It was clearly, in many ways, quite contemporary looking, very up to date in design terms in many ways. But he wanted it to have a, a universal quality that would lend itself to a, a variety of applications and wouldn't, and whose meaning wouldn't be bound by the events of the moment. Does his interest in arts decorative potential and function maybe go back even to his childhood in the north of France? How so? Well, I think it's, you shouldn't over-exaggerate this, but one of his earliest commissions, maybe his earliest commission, was to make paintings for the dining room, if I remember correctly, of his uncle in northern France, near the town where he grew up. And so from an early time, he was uh, exposed to the idea of art as a way of decorating a uh, domestic environment or an environment for living. He had one of his uh, early and least uh, agreeable jobs was to work for a, a so-called master painter of large decorations uh, for the Universal Exhibition of 1900 in Paris. And so he, he was set to work along with other young artists in making large scale decorations that would be put up in some of the great buildings for the fair. So he was introduced early on to uh, techniques and maybe in some sense to the importance uh, of decorative painting. And it should be said also that uh, that kind of, not that kind, but other kinds of large-scale decorative painting were really one of the summits of the, the Beaux-Arts tradition in France. Didactic uh, decorative mural projects for public buildings of various kinds are very, very important elements of political expression, regional expression in France in the third quarter and the fourth quarter of the 19th century. Uh, there are many mural projects all over the country for a variety of purposes. So it was an age of murals. And Matisse seems to have inherited, to use that as a metaphor, some of the ambition to paint on a large scale, to make artworks that would find a, a place in a public setting and that would uh, be seen by many people, as well as to make such artworks uh, for domestic settings. And so the book's out in 2016? Or earlier, if uh, everything aligns. Well, and it'll be, uh, it'll be out from Yale University Press. Yes. Right? John Klein, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.